seated. Find the book of James. We've been beginning last week. We kicked off a series in the book of James all about the ABC discipleship. James writes this book to give us sort of a beginning picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And I'm going to look this morning, we're going to read chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 together. Look with me, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. The Word of God says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of God. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a classic book called Outliers. I know I had to read that book actually in high school, I believe. And in the book, Gladwell studies what causes people to stand out, to be successful, to be outliers from the rest. And one of the principles in the book is the principle he calls the 10,000-hour rule. The principle is this, that in order to become a master of something, to become the best of the best, it takes 10,000 hours of practice. Now, there's some pushback you can go read, because certainly there are people who have natural God-given talents. And there are things that, no matter how many hours you practice, friends, I'm not going to be dunking a basketball at 10,001 hours of practice. It's just not happening, right? But the principle overall is a pretty good one because it teaches you that it takes work to become the best at something, even with God-given talents. That talent needs to be cultivated. Practice makes perfect. And in the walk of faith, we seek to mature and grow in our faith through spiritual disciplines, right? Reading our Bible, praying going to church, being in a small group, all sorts of these disciplines, but we also grow through trials. And friends, if it takes 10,000 hours to perfect a skill, what will 10,000 trials do for our faith? James wrote this letter to believers who were suffering. And in the ABCs of discipleship, James is going to do some math for us this morning. Easy math. One, two, threes of trial. How do we walk with Christ when life gets hard? What does discipleship look like when you hit trials and when life gets difficult? This is sort of the algebra of affliction. And this is where James begins the letter. And he starts in a very important place. With the first point we'll see this morning, he starts with showing us the reality of trials. The reality of trials. Look with me, look at verse 2, and look carefully at the words he chooses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Notice, he doesn't say if, but when. Trials are simply a matter of time. They are inevitable, and they're various. Trials come in all shapes, sizes, 
colors, various intensities, various sources, various lengths of time, yet it is all trial. And trials don't always have to be connected to explicit suffering. Friends, some of you, just the day-to-day grind of life can be a trial. Anything that takes effort for you to accomplish may be a trial. And friends, trials come to all economic levels, all ages, men, women, singles, married folks. It's a universal experience, and nothing will ultimately free you from trials in this life. Money can't do it. Politicians can't do it, regardless of how much they might promise you that they will. They can't. And friends, even your faith in Jesus is not going to shield you from trials in this life. And the original recipients of James' letter are evidence of this, because they had all sorts of trials among them that we're going to read about in the coming months. Chapter 5, we read that there were those among the congregation who were sick, and sick enough to need the elders to come to them, anoint them with oil, and pray over them. This is that awkward moment when I've shown up to some hospital visits, and even just for routine things, and folks have started to worry, well, the pastor's here, is something wrong? (laughs) Right? But no, these folks actually needed the pastor to come visit, the elders to come visit and pray over them in their moment of need. Chapter 2 gives us a glimpse of the mistreatment of the poor in the early church. The rich were put in this place of prominence, and the poor were outcasted and talked down to. And we know in the background there were believers here experiencing all sorts of persecution, being run out of their homes. They'd seen people they used to worship next to die for their faith. Talk about trials of various kinds, right? And for you, it may be family heartbreak. For you, it may be the pangs of death. It may be the incredible pain of disappointment or the crash of high expectation. It may be debilitating illness crippling depression. It may even just be trying to be an adult in this world, (laughs) trying to parent the kids God has given you, whatever it might be, trials of various kinds. And we have to understand, regardless of what some preacher may have told you, following Jesus does not exempt you from trials in your life. In fact, For these believers that James is writing to, their faith in Jesus actually made things worse for them. They were enduring much of this because of their faith. And if they just renounced Christ, life would have actually gotten a little easier for them. And so I want to speak particularly to the younger people here for a moment. Hear me, if you haven't already, you're going to hit a moment in your life when it will be easier to not be a Christian. You're going to hit moments in your life where you're tempted to go, maybe if I just compromise on this, or maybe if I just walk away from this, my life will get easier. You might be able to get a date with the person you think you really want if you just compromise a little bit. Some popularity, some all sorts, maybe even a promotion. But hear this, friends, exchanging, do not exchange momentary pleasure and exchange eternal glory for it. Hear this, friends, it's not worth giving up being a Christian for whatever the world may offer you. And so James is here to tell us that enduring trials as a believer will choose to be worth it. 
that the sacrifices will choose to be worth it, to stand the test when the day of trial comes is better than whatever the world has to offer. And this was the suffering and the trials that these experience, that these believers were experiencing, and we should take note of this. Because the Christian life is going to require sacrifice. It's going to require losing friendships. It might require losing popularity and opportunities and all of these things in order to have something greater. Or in particular, someone greater. Being a disciple of Jesus is not a pain-free journey. In fact, Jesus says this to those who want to follow him. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Think about that idea. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. Set aside what might be easy or convenient or popular in order to do what pleases God. In order to follow Christ. Following Jesus is going to mean you're not going to get everything you want. It means you might be considered sort of odd or an outsider. It means the culture may reject you, and friends, they might even call you names. Following Jesus is the path of the cross because Jesus' own life was free from sin, yet not free from sorrow. I love this quote from Augustine, Church Father Augustine. And here's what he said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Consider that even Jesus was not exempt from suffering. And what makes us think we're going to be? And we walk the path of a sinless son who was also a suffering son. The walk of faith is not a pain-free journey, but it's also not a purposeless journey either. In Christ on the path as a disciple, life will be hard, but it will not be hopeless. Life will be painful, but it will not be purposeless. In fact, that's where James turns next as he writes to these believers. He turns from the reality of trials to the results of trials. The results of trials. Look at verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Suffering produces something in the life of a believer. He says it produces steadfastness, endurance, patience, Growth, suffering is the soil on which faith sprouts. And this is where James wants us to do some very simple math. This is very, very simple math that he wants us to do. Because according to James, when suffering gets put into the equation with faith, two things get produced on the other end. Here's the first equation. We see this faith plus trials equals confirmation. Faith plus Trials equals confirmation. In fact, James's point here is to tell you that trials and suffering serve to, serve to show how deeply rooted your faith really is. In fact, Jesus, he told a parable 
I love this, about seeds and sowers, and he talks about rocky soil. And here's how he describes the rocky soil. Matthew chapter 13. As for anyone who has sown on rocky soil, this is one who spreads the word of God and he describes their response this way. It's the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Notice, Jesus describes false faith as initially being very excited, full of joy initially, yet having no roots. It may have endured for a while, but it didn't finish the race. It was faith that was faulty from the start. But James is calling us to have a true faith that produces, grows, and reaches completeness, not one that just walks away when things get difficult. A faith that is tested and found to be genuine, a faith that endures to the end. I'm going to say something shocking here in a second. It is easy for a preacher to get people to repeat a prayer after them. You turn up the music, you get a little cold in the room, you get some smoke going, make it look like you're at some sort of concert, right? You get the emotions going, repeat after me. You want a good life. Okay, (laughs) I'm on board, right? It's easy to get people stirred up and excited about Jesus, at least to the door. But you know what's a lot harder? The true path of discipleship. (laughs) Of rooted faith, tested by suffering, that produces steadfastness and endurance. And I'm afraid, as a church as a whole, we can be very quick to celebrate rocky soil faith and then act surprised when we get rocky soil results. (laughs) Man, they were so excited about Jesus. Yeah, but sometimes you got to give a seed, some time to grow before you kind of discern what it is. Faith is best measured, recognized, and proven over time. This is why I think a lot of churches may be a little quick when they see a child get very excited about Jesus. What's the first thing they do? And we're getting them in that baptistry and we're dunking them as quick as we can, right? And I'm like, well, maybe we need to see that there's some real growth and they're really ready to understand what this walk means for their life. And that might take some suffering, some trial, some time. Because a faith that is willing to be tested and tried is a faith that is willing to finish the race. If you're married today, you understand this. The honeymoon can be exciting. But it's the hospital rooms, the late nights, the moments of deepest sorrow, that's where your marriage is really defined. Parents, pregnancy, new baby is exciting. Then you get 18 plus years of raising them. That's where the real work begins, right? And the same principle here goes with faith. Initial excitement can be a good thing, but ultimately it means nothing if they don't run the race. Following Jesus is a marathon, not a sprint. You want to hear an old preacherism? I love these. These little phrases. I don't even know who originally said this. So this isn't original, but some old preacher came up with this. He said this, A faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at the first. 
You ever heard that before? A faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at the first. One, I don't know if I could say that too many more times, right? But it's a true principle because if it ends, it shows there was a problem with the root to begin with. And suffering is one of the ways our faith is shown to be genuine. Because trials want to function for us more like a crock pot than like a microwave. You understand this. Maybe you're like me. You put the hot pocket in the microwave. You hit the button and you come out. And for some reason, the hot pocket's so cold, it's so hot. Then you get to the inside and it's still frozen. How does that happen, right? God doesn't want hot pocket Christians. He doesn't want you to be real hot on the outside and cold on the inside. He wants to deeply marinate us and produce mature disciples. And that's what trial and testing does. Look what James says, verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says trials and the patience produced from them are meant to have their full effect on us. And when trials come into the equation of faith, we get confirmation, but we also get so much more. Here's the second thing we get. We put faith and trials into the equation and we get transformation. We get transformation. Because trials through faith, James chapter 1 tells us, makes us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I don't want you to think that the more you suffer, the more sinless you're going to be. I don't think he necessarily has in mind with perfection here a, a sinlessness. But rather, a sort of wholeness. A sort of maturity. In fact, James goes on in verse 5. You can see he says, if anyone lacks wisdom. And so there he talks about lacking, but he says, hey, suffering and trials, the, the, the school of life is going to help you to lack nothing, to be complete, to have what you need. God's got a school, and it's called suffering. <laughs> Anybody here been to the seminary of hard knocks, right? God's plan for maturity is difficult. Just like someone can master something through 10,000 hours of practice, so God makes fully formed disciples through 10,000 trials. And James uses the language here of letting steadfastness, endurance, and patience have its full effect. In other words, to trust the process and let the process work because you don't grow a tree overnight. And you don't grow as a disciple overnight either. All good things take time. And have you ever wondered why when God saves you, he doesn't just like take you to heaven right on the spot? I mean, he could, right? Save you, boom, you know. Wanted to make church kind of interesting, but we're getting saved and just boom, right? But he wants us to learn that the way toward maturity is through a long, steady walk in the same direction. And that's why we've got to be careful not to put expectations on new believers that God doesn't put on them. Babies don't just come out of the womb knowing how to run, right? They're going to fall. They're going to mess up. They're going to do these things. And so we need to be ready to understand, since the Christian life is a marathon, we're going to need to help some other people along. 
to teach and instruct and have grace on one another. That's how discipleship works. You can't master the guitar without calluses on your hands. No one who's ever run a marathon didn't have sore legs along the way, and you can't have a successful marriage without years of effort. And ultimately, you can't be a faithful follower of Jesus without submitting yourself to God's transformation program. Trials. Because through trials, we become more like the one we claim to follow because he suffered first. In fact, one of the most important things for us to understand is that the path of the cross is not a purposeless road. God doesn't just give you suffering for suffering's sake. There is not a trial along the road of your faith that is not going to serve you on the journey. Friends, maybe you've got that prodigal child, and God may be using that to teach you to pray and to trust. God may have taken someone from your life in order for you to now lean fully into the Savior's hands. Friends, even the most mild inconvenience throughout your life is there to teach you patience. And be careful asking God to teach you patience. Right? He loves answering prayers like that. And certainly the day-to-day grinds of this world are meant to teach us discipline. Friends, God may knock you on your knees so that you lift up your hands in praise. Suffering is the pathway to surrender. And God gives us grace in the grit. Because he doesn't let us walk alone. He gives us pardon, his presence, and power for the road. And we've got the Savior who we follow, who, is, who has us in his hands, and who promises that all of our trials, our testings, our hospital beds, our unanswered prayers, the mild inconveniences, all of it, through Jesus, are working together for our good. That's what James is also promising to us. But the refining fire is often best seen in the rearview mirror. You don't often see it at the moment. We've got to look back to see it. And it's through suffering that God is making us into fully formed disciples of Jesus. And this is why we can respond in an unlikely way. Let's go back to the beginning of the passage and see third, the response to trials. The response to trials. Friends, don't think I miss the start of the passage. We needed to see where the journey ended, suffering, working toward completeness, before we could see the proper response for us in the present. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. 10,000 trials are also 10,000 joys. Do we see them that way? That's the math James is trying to teach us. The algebra of affliction. That trials, when added to the life of faith, will produce momentary discomfort, but also serve our everlasting good. And the secret to, to God's algebra of affliction is far more difficult than finding X. Here's what God wants you to find. Patience. Patience is a whole lot worse than any algebra I ever had to do, right? In fact, James closes the book this way. Look all the way over James chapter 5. 
toward the end, James chapter 5, verse 10. Look at this. Look at this. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, hey, consider the prophets. There wasn't a single prophet who had a ministry that any of us would long to have. Think of Isaiah. Isaiah, God says, hey, Isaiah, I want you to go preach to the people, but, but when you preach, your preaching is going to harden their heart. They're going to reject you, and I'm going to bring judgment anyway, but I still want you to go preach to those people. There's not a single person who's like, do you want me to go spend my whole life preaching to a bunch of people who aren't going to listen or going to reject me? Sign me up. Right? Sign me up for that mission trip. Right? But that's what God did through the prophets. Consider Job. The purpose and the character of the Lord and his suffering. Here's the purpose. Here's the point for us. The key to present joy in trial is entrusting God's process, purposes, and promises. Trusting God's process, his purposes, and his promises. Friends, Job went from the mountaintop to the darkest valley, yet the story of Job ends with him worshiping God. He didn't ever get answers to some of his questions, but he did meet the God who was the answer to all of his questions. Jonah went through a weekend in the whale. Friends, Moses walked with the people of God through a desert, and there were mountaintops and valleys and trials of various kinds. And whether you're on the mountaintop this morning or you're in the valley, both are meant to be responded to with joy and to produce patience in us because God is at work in both. And the lesson is summed up actually in James chapter 1, verse 12. Look at this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast Fast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He says, stay the course. Walk with Jesus even when life gets hard. Trust the process. Trust God's past purposes. He's used the suffering of others before you. He can certainly use yours. And trust God's future promise. Because the path of the cross ends with the path of life. Stand firm. God has promised that all his people who, who he has given a rooted faith to will finish the race and receive an unfading crown of glory. Friends, it makes it a whole lot easier to get up and run the race knowing that God has secured that you will finish the race. God promises us grace for the road. If you want assurance that God is at work in your deepest trials, let me have you just consider the gospel. Consider that God sent his son into the world to live a sinless life, but it was still a life with trials. Remember, most of Jesus' life we don't read much about. He was just some lowly carpenter working. We only really read about his birth and the last three years of his life. And we get a little bit of info in Luke about when he was a teenager, right? But besides that, he just lived his life as a regular carpenter. He likely received splinters. 
and was injured with nails. And those trials were part of the purpose of Jesus. He entered his ministry, and then the trials really ramped up. He was rejected by his own family. He had nowhere to lay his head, and he would endure the cross. And the seemingly mundane trials of a carpenter became much more monumental when he truly got cut by wood and nails as he was hung on a cross. And there he would bleed and die and endure the punishment of God for our sins. And friends, praise God, Jesus stood fast in the face of trial for you. He could have got down off that cross at any moment had he wanted to. But friends, he stood fast in the face of of trial and friends he received the crown of life as the king of the universe because after he died he was buried he rose again and he ascended to heaven and is in heaven today as lord over all and that's the savior we follow <laughs> and friends as he promises all who follow him we're going to walk the path of the cross in order to receive the crown of life. And he is going to give us grace for every step of the way. The old hymn puts it this way. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Some of you today are in the midst of trial, and you need confidence that God is going to bring you home. And Jesus offers that today. He says, all who I have brought to me, I will lose none of. I will bring you to the finish line. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6 says, he will bring forth to the day of completion. So if you need that hope and that confidence today, Jesus stands ready to give that to you. Maybe for others, the response today is we need to trade in comfort for the way of the cross. Maybe some of us, we do secretly really long to be accepted by the world. We long to live a comfort-free life. We don't really want people to think of us as sort of odd. To think of us the way they thought even of Jesus and of all his disciples. And the invitation this morning is to trade in your comfort for the way of the cross, to turn from the life you're living, and to follow full speed with full commitment after Jesus, to repent. That's what turning is, right? And to believe the gospel. For others, maybe the invitation is to look back over your life and to find joy in the midst of the trial to see, wow, I could never imagine all that God would do. He has truly restored the years the locusts have eaten in greater ways. And I thank you, Lord, for using that trial to get me where I am. And friends, the ultimate confidence to you is that Jesus, the suffering son, has bled and died and risen again to assure you that the Father will bring and today, maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you need prayer. I'll be up front. The steps are open for you to pray. Or maybe you need to pray to God for the first time. To turn to him in faith. 
to place your faith in him or to ask him to get your life on the right track. I'll be here. Again, the steps are open. Whatever you need to do today, God stands ready to receive you. Blessed is the man who is steadfast in the face of trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let us stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, trials are hard. We don't pretend to minimize their difficulty, to minimize their struggle. But Lord, we do recognize that you are at work within them to bring about our good and your glory. And you're using them in an ever mysterious way to produce in us steadfastness and to leave us perfect, lacking nothing. And so today, Lord, I pray we would all fully commit to your plan of discipleship for us. We would leave behind our desires for present comforts and give ourselves fully to go, I'm following you by faith. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Because you are going to be there with me. And Lord, may we be encouraged by the crown to walk faithfully today on the path of the cross. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Your love, O oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. Your righteousness is like the and your justice flows like the ocean's tide. And I will lift my high voice to worship you, my King. And I will find my high strength in the shadow.
suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. 